that brings us to the next section. The next section is David's praise. We know that David wrote many psalms. In fact, the majority of book one in the book of Psalms are David's psalms. And it is so clear from those psalms that that man had an incredible heart for God. The theology is not always correct, but that's not the point of psalms. Psalms is that even with bad theology and doubts, you take it all to God and God can handle it. But he had an incredible heart for God. What the narrator does is he takes one of David's psalms, and specifically Psalm, 1, or psalm 18, and puts it into the narrative. This is almost a word-for-word copy of Psalm 18. And the reason the narrator is doing this is it is very easy for us to disassociate things. It's very easy for us, like in one church service or one Bible study time or one personal devotion time, to read Samuel and be like, aha, aha, aha. And then months later, you're in the book of Psalms thinking, oh yeah, David wrote this. David wrote this. But to connect them, the narrative with the poetry, yeah, I'm not saying we can't, but it's, it's not the norm of how our brains usually function. And there's so many times where we have an aha moment over here in our life, an aha moment over here in a moment, and it takes years for they connect, and you're like, oh my gosh, why didn't these things ever connect? And when we get the kings, I'm going to show you a very specific point where we've taught one thing about God, and, and then and we taught another thing, and they completely contradict each other. And when we put them together, you realize, oh my gosh, how did I ever believe those two things at the same time? And it's because putting stories together is important. And so the narrator is taking the psalm and putting into the narrative of David's life to remind you, this is that David. The David of the narrative is the David of the psalms. And by putting literally in the same book, he's reminding you of that. And so this is Psalm 18 with just a few minor changes. This one in 20, chapter 22 omits the first line of Psalm 18. But other than that, they're pretty close to each other. So David sang to Yahweh the words of the song when Yahweh rescued him from the power of all of his enemies, including Saul. So this is how David responded after Saul was driven away from David one of those many times. Yahweh is my high ridge, or my rock, my stronghold, my deliverer. Now remember, Hannah's song at the very beginning called Yahweh her rock. And remember, this rock goes back to the Exodus where Moses struck the rock, and the rock provided water. But remember, it wasn't a little rock from your flannel graph. It was a giant ridge, a mountain. And when it split open, a gushing river flowed out. And so from that point on, the rock is used to refer to God's power, his sovereignty, him as a shield to us, like a cliff can be a shield from enemies and weather, as well as provision of water. Because in the ancient world, oftentimes mountains are the origin of springs or um, melting snow and that kind of stuff. And so David is acknowledging that Yahweh is his stronghold, his fortress, his rock, his shield, my deliverer. My God is my rocky summit where I take shelter. My shield, the horn that saves me, my stronghold, my refuge, my savior, you save me from violence. Remember the horn is also another image that Hannah had used. And, and David is now referring to that. Once again, remember the horn is the horn of an animal, and it represents authority and power. And so Hannah looked forward to the day that God would lift up the horn of Israel, which is the king. 
And now David is basically saying that Yahweh is his horn. Because remember, the main purpose of the book of Samuel is that true leadership only comes when you submit yourself to the ultimate sovereignty of Yahweh as king. And David, and deep in his heart, is acknowledging, yes, are there times that he took power in his own hands and got corrupted? Yes. Are there times that he saw what he wanted and took what he wanted? Yes. But in this psalm, he is reminded of, Yahweh is ultimately my horn. He is ultimately my authority. You're the one that saved me, not my own strength, not my own abilities. You are the one that saved me. I called to Yahweh who is worthy of praise, and I was delivered from my enemies. The waves of death engulfed me. The currents of chaos overwhelmed me. Now remember the sea, the raging sea, is a symbol of chaos and death all throughout the Bible. And so he's using that imagery that he is in death. The ropes of Sheol tightened around me. The snares of death trapped me. Sheol is the word for the grave, where you go when you die. And so the imagery that he's portraying is that he was on the brink of death or he felt like he was going to die. He literally lost any hope of ever surviving this ordeal in any kind of a way. And yet he cried out to Yahweh, and Yahweh immediately responded. And this is his response, is to praise. In my distress, I called to Yahweh, I called to my God. From his heavenly temple, he heard my voice. He listened to my cry for help. The earth heaved and shook, and the foundations of the sky trembled. And they heaved because he was angry. Smoke ascended from his nose. Fire devoured as it came from his mouth. He hurled down fiery coals and he made the sky sink as he descended a thick cloud under his feet. Now in the ancient world, every single time God shows up, it's in the storm cloud. And that's what's being described. The smoke of the fire and coming out of him. He's wrapping himself in the clouds. He's riding the clouds. He's coming with his lightning and he's striking the enemy down. That's how God is always portrayed. And what a contrasting scene. You have David wasting away on the battlefield or being attacked by Saul. He's completely hopeless. He's surrounded by the chaos of death and people dying. And also in the middle of nowhere, this storm just shows up. And is Yahweh thundering down in all of his power. He made the sky sink. Or verse 11. He mounted a winged angel and flew. He glided on the wings of the wind. He shrouded himself in darkness and think rain clouds. Now that's interesting because we don't often think of ourselves of God shrouding himself in darkness. God is light and in him there is no darkness. First John chapter one, verse five. This is this is the idea that he is light. But when he comes in a storm cloud, the idea is darkness, not that God is darkness, but he is angry. It is wrath. And he's bringing judgment, and that brings darkness and despair on people. And even Job describes Yahweh showing up when God is angry at Job for his bad theology and false accusations. He comes in a storm cloud, and Job basically responds with like, Oops, I won't talk anymore. Okay, It was fine when I was sitting all by myself in a field, but now that he's here, it's like I'm really scared. So this is how God shows up. He shrouds himself in the clouds, the darkness of the storm clouds, a thick rain cloud from brightness in front of him, came coals of fire. Now there's where you get the light, the fire shooting out of him in judgment. Now remember, the word fire here is lightning. They didn't have a word for lightning in the ancient world. We have a word for lightning, but they didn't. It wasn't until after the Greeks or later in the Greeks that they had that word. 
And the reason they called it fire is because when lightning hits the ground, it bursts into fire. And you say, yeah, but it doesn't look like our fire. Yeah, because it's the fire of the gods. And when it's in the spiritual realm, it looks like lightning. But when it hits the material realm, it becomes our fire. And so that fire is a lightning. Yahweh thunder. Now, it can also be fire at different times too, but it's a mixture of this too. Yahweh thundered from the sky. The sovereign one shouted loudly. He shot arrows and scattered them. Lightning routed them. That's lightning, like Zeus. Zeus is a plagiarism of Yahweh. The depths of the sea were exposed, and the inner regions of the world were uncovered by Yahweh's battle cry, by the powerful breath of his, from his nose. That's the wind, the storm. I can't imagine to hear the battle cry of Yahweh. I mean, when he just merely spoke on Mount Sinai, they thought they were going to die, let alone the battle cry. He reached down from above and grabbed me. He pulled me from the surging water. He rescued me from the strong enemy, from those who hate me, from those who are too strong for me. Now notice how quickly everything shifts. It's this incredible, powerful, earth-shaking, pee-your-pants experience of Yahweh showing up. And in that midst, all of a sudden he turns into Savior. And he's reaching his hand down into the grave, the depths of um, David's despair. He's pulling him out like a rescuer, like a savior. And so notice that you have the absolute sovereign kingship power of Yahweh, coupled with Yahweh as a savior who rescues people from their trials and troubles. They're all tied in together in the exact same idea. My enemy, verse 19, they confronted me in, the, in, in my day of calamity. But Yahweh helped me. He brought me out into the wide open place. He delivered me because he was pleased with me. And Yahweh repaid me for my godly deeds. He rewarded my blameless behavior. For I have obeyed Yahweh's commands. I have not rebelled against God. You're like, really, David? Is that all true? (laughs) But remember, what David is saying in that moment is he is blameless. The word blameless actually doesn't mean perfect. It doesn't mean righteous. It doesn't even really mean obedient all the time. The word blameless has the idea that nobody can hold things against you. What it means is this. We're all going to sin. I mean, technically, if blameless means perfect righteousness, then there's no one who's blameless. Yet God calls Abraham blameless, Job blameless. So many people throughout the Bible are called blameless. The word blameless has the idea of, yes, I may be a sinner. Yes, I may make mistakes. But when I make those mistakes, I immediately confess them. My slate is always clear between, like even with my wife, there are times I screw up. I say, do stupid things. I'm insensitive. She hurts me. She's insensitive. She does things. But one of the things that we've got better over the years is, even though we still hurt each other, and that will always be there, one of the things that she and I have actually improved over the years is quickly confessing things and quickly dealing with things. And that sense the slate is clean. And whatever's between us is no longer there anymore. And even if there's something that's a reoccurring pattern, we've talked through that and we understand why it's a recurring pattern. Because love covers a multitude of sins. And so the idea is this. Blameless has the idea that I really want to do the right thing. I want to serve God. I want to be pleasing to him. So I'm going to do everything in my power, accountability groups, reading the Bible, prayer, confession, all anything I can to pursue him. But when I don't do that and I sin and I mess up, then I immediately and quickly repent. 
and I, and I deal with it. I get it all out of the darkness. Sin thrives in the darkness. And even when you bring sin out into the light, there are consequences. There's still, um, there can be shame and there can be guilt, but it's still very different feeling when it's out in the light. And then when it's out there, then it can be dealt with. And what it means is kind of this idea of, think about politicians. Every single time a politician runs for president, the media tries to find skeletons in the closet. And most of the time they find them. And they find him, and everybody who's like, he's going to make America great again. He's going to bring hope and change. He's our savior. And then they discover some scandalous sexual affair or doing drugs or shredding emails or whatever it is. And everybody's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe they're not perfect. They've done that. Like, every, like seriously, how many presents do we have to have before we were not... Or celebrities and all this kind of stuff. And we're completely shocked. And then it becomes scandalous. And, 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 and everybody realizes that there's this cover-up campaign and all this kind of stuff and Watergate and um, everything, right? Blameless means that you confess it and it's out there. And it means this idea that it doesn't mean you have to confess to everybody. I believe that the more public you are and the more public your sin is, the more public your confession has to be. And, and, and if you're more individualistic and your influence is small and your sins only affect a few, then the more private the confession becomes. But that's something that you, your accountability partners, and the Spirit of God work out and how the wisest way to do that is. But what it does mean is that you confess it. When the media catches this and says, look at this, look at what he did or what she did, all of a sudden there's a whole bunch of people that are surrounding you who stand up and say, yeah, we know that. He confessed that 15 years ago. And he's been doing this, this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and this to try to stay right. And, and he's, make re- he's made reconciliation with this woman and this guy and this kid. And, and that's not secretive. I mean, maybe to the entire population of America. But there's enough people that actually can stand up and say, we already knew that. And, and here's how he's dealt with it. And he's slipped up a few times. And she's, but she's confessed it every single time. And, and here's what he's doing and she's doing to surround themselves to make sure they don't do it. And we already know that. And then all of a sudden, nobody can blame you for anything anymore. Because you haven't covered it up. You haven't ignored it. And there's nobody that you paid off to keep it quiet or anything like that. And all these people know it and they can point to all these things and you're like, oh, okay. And it lost all of its power of accusation. And that's what David means. He doesn't mean like, I've done everything great. <laughs> he means that I have confessed everything. And, and, and Yahweh saved me because he was pleased with me. It doesn't mean he was pleased with every single behavior that I've ever done in my entire life. But he's pleased with me because I, our relationship is right. At least at this moment, our relationship is right. There is nothing in the darkness that I have not confessed to God. There's nothing that I haven't dealt with the people closest to me. I am blameless. And that's what David's communicating. That's huge. Because we would look at the behavior and say, heck no, you're not righteous. And David would say, heck right, you're, I'm not. But I'm blameless. I've confessed it. I've dealt with it. And there's nothing hidden between me and God. Everything is in the light. And that's why God is pleased with me. And that's why he's called me a man after God's own heart. 
And that's why one day he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Yes, behavior is extremely important. Yes, God has called us to obey all of his commands, to love God and love others and that kind of stuff. But God also knew we were going to screw that up over and over and over again, thus the need for the cross. And when we go to the cross constantly, then we can say we are blameless. And that's what God looks at. That's what he's pleased with. He can deal with the behavior. He's chosen not to deal with a rebellious heart, a hard heart. He does not change those usually. He will influence them. He will soften them. But ultimately, we have our own choice. And if you choose to pursue God, you can do lots of things with that. Even if you have a friend or a spouse that has wronged you, if they choose to pursue you in that wrongness, there's a lot you can do that with that relationship. But if they are completely hard-hearted, there's not much you can do. There's not much you can do. And so this is what he's saying. 